It's time for Cadillac On Call on News Radio 610 KONA. It's your chance to learn valuable health information right here in our community. Now, the host of Cadillac On Call, here's Jim Hall. Good evening, friends. Welcome to another edition of Cadillac On Call presented by the Cadillac Foundation. My name is Jim Hall, and each Wednesday night we are here to talk about a particular health or medical topic. And tonight, a split program, the first half of our show, we're going to focus in on the latest with COVID-19 and probably most importantly, the availability of vaccine in our region. And in the second half of our program, a somewhat tied topic, and that is heart health. We're going to be visiting with some cardiology experts from Catholic Regional Medical Center as we uh, move through the month of February, a month where we raise the profile on good heart health. But first, we're going to go to the phones and bring uh, back a regular guest of ours, Heather Hill, who is the Communicable Disease Program Manager with the Benton Franklin Health District. And Heather, it doesn't matter whether we have a foot of snow or more on the ground in our region, the weather all across the country has seemed to be having an impact on the availability of vaccines. Maybe give us an update to begin with on what's happening with our fairgrounds vaccination site. Sure, I'd be glad to, Jim. When we ended our our clinic last week, we learned that our vaccine was actually going to be delayed and we anticipated actually starting Thursday with this week's clinic. But we've subsequently learned that the vaccine actually wasn't even shipped and so wasn't going to arrive to even start clinic a little later this week. So we're looking into next week is, is probably when we will be back up and running. I think what's important to understand with this vaccine, once it leaves the warehouse, it needs to arrive at its destination within a certain period of time. And with the weather all across the United States, that could make it a little bit treacherous to get the vaccine really out to where it needs to. So I think they held back actually on shipping it to make sure that it would arrive at destinations and not get stuck in a snowstorm en route. So as we're sitting here talking at this hour, what is the the best thought of when uh, folks would be getting vaccinated out at the fairground site? And if my understanding is correct, is it still going to be second dose per people that will be getting the, the doses? That is what Department of Health is asking us to focus on. We've been out there for three full weeks now going into our fourth. So it's time for some of those people to to get their second doses scheduled in, knowing that whether it's Moderna or Pfizer, your first vaccine only imparts, you know, in the low 50 percent effectiveness rate. And so you really need that second dose on board to bump you into the mid 90s for effectiveness. So Department of Health is, and Center for Disease Control is really asking us to focus on getting those second doses in people. But we suspect with the extra doses that we're able to get out of our vials, that we might be able to offer at least a limited amount of first doses as, as we've found throughout these weeks that there is a little extra in some of these vials and we are able to actually give more vaccine than what we anticipated. So what is the plan then for people that may have had appointments, say tomorrow, Friday and Saturday? Will they be contacted for next week? What we typically do, and Department of Health is certainly in charge of this, if we were given access to an email or can text message them, we'll be using a variety of ways to message people 
to reschedule their appointments for next week. And certainly listening to social media, you know, of course, Catholic on call, getting the message out this way, our news media outlets, Facebook, all of those ways we try to message our community that our, our clinic is just not able to happen this week. So at this point, the, the plan would be in, under best circumstances that you'd be able to hopefully resume, say, next Tuesday, which is kind of what the schedule you had been running t- Tuesday through Saturday. But again, is the is the advice then just check the DOH website, the health district website, and all uh, news media websites just to know, find out when the, when this availability occurs? That's the best way to find out. And as soon as we're able to announce it, we will certainly be getting busy getting the information out. And so how's it going uh, up until the weather? It sounds like uh, our site has been extremely successful. I know we visited the last few weeks that you have to be very pleased with how everything's going. It's just, again, the, the what everybody knows is the unavailability of enough vaccine. And that's really the, the limiting factor here. As I watch the clinic every day that I'm out there, we could certainly vaccinate more people if we had access to the vaccine, but it's a national problem. There just isn't enough vaccine available at this point in time. But what we've got happening out at the fairgrounds is a very, very efficiently run operation utilizing not only the National Guard, but local law enforcement, EMS, you know, and, and Benton Franklin Health District staff to really work very hard at at running this efficient operation, and we could easily do at least 2,000 a day. Our our most vaccinated in one day so far has been 1,400, and that was when we were anticipating needing to close on Saturday because of inclement weather. We messaged people to try to get in on Friday, so we were really geared up to do two days' worth of vaccinations in in one day, and that took us up to about 1,400 doses that day. And I know our colleagues at Cadillac had to postpone their planned clinic for the same reasons that the fairgrounds did today as well. But where in the meantime, I know um, since we last spoke last week, uh, our county region is now into phase two like the rest of the state. But regardless of the availability or unavailability of vaccine, I know the public health measures are still being really prioritized, correct? Right. I think people need to understand that we have finally moved into phase two, and that's a wonderful thing. But we can't let our guard down. We need to continue to do all those mitigation strategies, the keeping our social groups very small, wearing face covering, washing our hands, getting vaccinated whenever it's your turn, because we've moved forward, but that doesn't mean if our data doesn't look good in the future, we could actually be moved back into phase one. So now's not the time to let our guard down. And testing, testing is an extremely important component. We are encouraging people who maybe were in gatherings, went out and celebrated a little. If you're concerned that you might have been in a situation where you could have been exposed, go get testing. Our CBC test site is open and you can get in and out very quickly. The turnaround time is quick. And it's very important that people get tested, especially if you're feeling like you have symptoms or just concerned you might have been exposed. Our testing data is still pretty high, our case rate. We need to see it below 10%, 
and our positivity rate at our test center is still running in the mid to upper teens. So getting tested is an extremely important component of us being able to maintain uh, staying in phase two. But case counts are improving, and as you, I know hospitalizations are continuing to trend uh, downward, which is a good sign, but the, I know the percent positive seems to be the one that, that we have the difficulty uh, meeting regularly. Right, and that's, that's why we need people, a lot more people to get tested. Even if you find out you're negative, that really helps lower that that positive rate at our test center. And are they still open five or six days a week or even more? I, they, at one time, I know they were operating daily. Yep, they're running daily out there at CBC West. They did have a little trouble with the snow, just like the um, vaccination site did. So, you know, keep your eyes on our health department website because we certainly do announce as soon as we know they're going to need to shut down because of inclement weather. I know when I was driving back from the airport Sunday afternoon, it was in a veritable blizzard, and they appeared to be open then. So thank you to them. And, Heather, thank you for taking the time to be with you, uh, with us, and continued good success, and hope that vaccine makes its way out here again next week so the great work can continue. Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. More of Cadillac on Call right after this. You're listening to Cadillac on Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac on Call. Here again, Jim Hall. In spite of this inclement weather, we still continue to see uh, promising signs in the statistics relative to COVID-19. Although we have a slight disruption and postponement of some of the vaccination clinics happening due to the weather across the country, uh, we're hopeful that, as Heather mentioned, that we'll be back to vaccinating uh, higher levels of people next week. But there's also some current concern coming out uh, nationally and relative to COVID-19, and that's this word variant. And we're happy to welcome back to the program Dr. Brian York, who's an infectious disease specialist at Catholic and has been a frequent guest on our program over the past year. And, and Dr. York, maybe just an introductory comment for our listeners of what, are, what do we mean by this term variant and what, is, what level of concern should we have? Well, COVID-19 is caused by a virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and most viruses have the ability to mutate. Uh, some do it more than others, and we've known from the beginning that the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, was mutating, and early on, the mutations that were seen uh, did not appear to change the virus in any meaningful way as far as you know how infective it was or the clinical course of patients who had the virus um, over the past Four or five months, however, we have seen emergence of some variant strains that are essentially mutations that have some slight genetic changes that affect the virus that um, change the way it behaves in humans. And in in most of these, what we've seen is that it tends to spread a little more quickly, uh, be more contagious. Uh, In in some of them, we've seen that people have a higher likelihood of having severe illness and requiring hospitalization. Uh, But they're essentially... um, strains of the virus that are slightly different than what we call the wild type, which was the originally identified uh, virus of the group. So what you're saying is this word variant is, is I know the concern was that the, does the vaccine help in combating even these variants? Uh, so far, it has been. 
Um, the most common one is the one that we heard about from the United Kingdom that we know caused a very large surge in their case counts and hospitalizations. Uh, originally identified in October and really took off through November and December in the United Kingdom. But they're finding there that the, the people who have been vaccinated are protected from that strain. Uh, and that's part of why we've seen such a reduction in cases there. In the, the U.K., uh, cases uh, peaked at about 60,000 a day in early January, and they're down about 75% from that now. They're, they're down in the 12 to 13,000 case per range, uh, which is where they were before the emergence of uh, that new strain. And that's the, the variant strain that has spread most widely around the world. Uh, it's been reported to be detected in the U.S. Uh, since December of 2020. Um, and then there are some other strains that are uh, one that's linked to Brazil, another that's linked to South Africa, uh, both of which have also been identified in the U.S. Uh, by January, um, but not in, not in large numbers and not quite as widely distributed as the U.K. strain. So us sitting here uh, listening to you talk and hearing what we hear across the country relating to these, wh- what should we take away w- from all of this? Well, I think um, the most important thing to take away is, like all topics with COVID-19, everything is being learned as we go. So we we identify that these variant strains are out there, and then we have to start collecting data about them, just like we did for COVID-19 at the beginning, to really try to get a sense of whether the the illness they cause is the same, are the, the symptoms perhaps different, uh, are the risk factors different? We, we understand now who is at risk for severe disease from COVID-19, and have any of these new variant strains changed that? Is it a, Are they going to affect younger people, or are they going to affect people who don't have pre-existing conditions? And obviously, that's very important as far as how we uh, direct our um, uh, control measures and our vaccination strategy. And so that's being actively looked at. And so far, it does not appear that they've uh, change those kinds of factors with regard to uh, the illness. The, the risk factors remain the same. It's just that they are more contagious and perhaps a little bit more likely to cause uh, severe illness. Um, the the CDC is working on active surveillance. They've they've reached out to a number of large national labs that are doing a lot of the testing for COVID-19 uh, to establish a, a process to randomly sample all of the positive, um, basically when a a sample tests positive for COVID-19, it goes into a database and a random sampling of those can be sent to the CDC or to local state public health laboratories where the equipment is available uh, to do the full sequencing and see where are these strains uh, showing up. It's not possible to do that for every sample, but if you're, you know, sampling, you know, maybe a thousand a day, they can see where these have spread and how widely they're present in the United States. And of course, identify the patients that have them so that we can start to understand what differences may exist and how how they affect patients. We have touched on the numbers in many areas relative to COVID are heading in the right direction, hospitalizations declining, case counts declining, and the like. Uh, relative to vaccine, I know the availability is the challenge, but once it becomes more available to, to the masses, if you will, what is your advice as an infectious disease uh, professional and expert for people that might be a little reluctant to consider getting the vaccine? Well, I think we've, even now with the limited amount of vaccine we've had available, 
we've actually had very good experience with administering this vaccine. Um, everyone's heard about the uh, widely publicized cases of anaphylaxis that occurred in the UK when they uh, were rolling it out to all of their healthcare workers. Um, we heard about anaphylactic reactions that occurred in Alaska uh, when it first started being rolled out in the U.S. and in a few other places. And those all got very highly publicized. Um, but, you know, we don't usually hear on the news when someone gets anaphylaxis from a medication or a vaccine. Um, so it gives the impression that this is happening all the time and that this is um, a frequent occurrence. But actually, we've we've seen very uh, small numbers of anaphylaxis. Uh, in our effort to vaccinate our employees, uh, we, we administered you know well over 2,000 uh, vaccines, uh, I think about 2,500, and didn't have any episodes of of uh, anaphylaxis. And our, at our community mass vaccination site out at the fairgrounds, they've been giving 900 to 1,000 vaccines a day for several weeks now. And they have EMS on standby, and they're monitoring all of these vaccine recipients for 15 to 30 minutes, depending on their risk of anaphylaxis. And so far, there has not been an episode of anaphylaxis. And uh, people who have a history of anaphylaxis can still receive the vaccine. They're just monitored a little bit longer. And so far, uh, we have not had that happen in our community. So I think people should feel that um, it is a safe vaccine and obviously very effective at, at preventing uh, severe disease and keeping people healthy. And so one I, I do recommend people receive it. And one final question before we let you go. So much to talk about, but for people that have, have had the vaccine, I know this is a question I get quite often is, is what is, are they at risk of transmitting COVID themselves, even though they've had the vaccine? So where are we with that? Well, early on when the vaccines first came out, there was a lot of talk about the fact that the results of the vaccine trials did not prove that people might not still be reservoirs for asymptomatic spread, even though they weren't going to develop symptoms or get sick. This, the vaccine trials were not designed to address that question, but at the same time, there, I'm not aware of any other viral illness for which people who've been vaccinated, uh, who've received protection from the, the virus, still spread it to other people. So it was a theoretical concern that they may still spread this asymptomatically because we do know that with COVID-19, asymptomatic spread is a phenomenon that occurs. So it's a, it's a legitimate question to ask, but it wasn't addressed in those studies. And there have now been studies looking at that, um, none of which have been published yet, but the preliminary results, I just heard a report yesterday out of the CDC that it's really looking like people who've been vaccinated are not likely to still be spreading COVID-19, but we really are waiting for more robust information before we can say that there can be a change in how uh, people go about their lives. We're still asking that everyone who's received the vaccine still assume that they could be potentially contagious and still, you know, focus on hand washing and distancing and mask wearing and all of the things that we've been doing. You led me in. I was going to give you an extra 10 seconds, but you kind of answered it. But I guess until it is more widely available, that's a continued advice. Follow these public safety measures? Yes, absolutely. Dr. Brian York, an infectious disease specialist at Cadillac, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. Back with the second half of Cadillac on Call right after this.
listening to Cadillac on Call on 610-KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610-KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac on Call. Once again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to the program. We're going to shift our focus a little bit uh, further. I know the COVID can impact the, the lungs and the heart. We're going to focus our second half of the program on good heart health. And who better to do that with than April Valdez, who is an Advanced Registered Nurse Practitioner, or ARNP. You may have seen that acronym, with Cadillac and Link Cardiology. And April works with cardiac patients of all ages around the Tri-Cities area. And we appreciate her taking a few minutes out of her schedule to share some good heart health tips with us during this month of February. And April, maybe just in a, an opening comment of does uh, the cold weather, I mean, you're, people are inside, not able to get out as much. Does that have an impact on heart health? Yeah, thank you for having me. I definitely do think uh, the cold weather and the winter weather has an impact on heart health. And um, I think that makes it more difficult for people to get out, to be active, uh, to uh, maybe uh, get out and get healthy meals. So generally speaking, uh, the winter months can be more challenging. And, of course, the summer months can uh, definitely improve people's health because of the sunshine. Uh, but there's lots of things that we can still do uh, from a heart standpoint, even if we're stuck at home. Well, and I know most of the one thing we can control is diet. Uh, so I, I'm sure that's hugely important to good heart health. Yeah, so in cardiology and in general medicine, we definitely promote um, a heart-healthy diet. And from the American Heart Association, uh, they recommend certain types of diets uh, to include a Mediterranean-style diet uh, or a vegetarian-style diet. And the third, which is listed, is what's called DASH, which includes uh, avoiding added sodium. So when I talk with my patients, I definitely uh, promote a heart-healthy diet uh, in general uh, to include the whole foods, really making sure that you're getting foods that are actually foods and less processed foods. And generally that includes adding in a lot of plant-based uh, meals into your diet um, and avoiding some of those things that we should be avoiding like processed foods and uh, high salt. What about heart symptoms? I know uh, heart attack certainly is is on the minds of, of a lot of different people, and people that seem to be fairly well-versed in the symptoms of heart disease. But, but I know they're different for men and women, but maybe if you would spend a minute or so uh, providing some context for us in this area. Yeah, sure, no problem. So generally speaking, I mean, the classic signs of uh, heart disease or potentially a heart attack would include chest pain, sometimes pain that is, uh, feels like indigestion or gastric reflux. Uh, sometimes the pain will radiate down one of the arms. Uh, most commonly, of course, you'll hear about it radiating down the left arm. But again, that can be uh, dependent on the person or even if it's a man or a woman. Jaw pain is very common. Uh, but what we tend to also be mindful of is symptoms that may be uh, more vague, like increased shortness of breath, increased fatigue, or even back pain that's unusual for uh, a person. Things that have changed that are unusual for somebody can definitely lead us to look into uh, 
heart attack or coronary artery disease. And is this something that I know women should pay particular attention to that that maybe I know in recent years it's gotten more attention, but women and heart disease is a lot more common than maybe people think? Yeah, so we definitely know that during a period of time uh, in the younger years, uh, women seem to be more protected uh, from cardiovascular disease. But especially after menopause, uh, they tend to catch up to the men, unfortunately, uh, to coronary artery disease and heart attacks. So it's definitely something that women should pay attention to and be mindful of particularly because the symptoms may be more vague or may be different than what are considered the classic signs that I just described. So I would encourage anybody, if they're exhibiting any, any symptoms, to um, you know, pay close attention to your body. I think that's something that's uh, very important for men and women, coronary artery disease or other diseases, that we have to pay attention to changes within symptoms and changes that we may uh, be concerned about and we should probably uh, seek medical care for. And I know you're not on the first responder side of things, but my first responder friends always tell me if you're having any of these symptoms, one, don't wait, and two, you should call 911. Yeah, we definitely want people to get early uh, interventions and also early medical care. So, uh, of course, if you're at home, the ambulance is uh, the best uh, person to come and help you. Um, and then once you do reach the emergency department, they, of course, on the first line are ready to help and ready to uh, intervene as necessary. Uh, so definitely don't wait and definitely seek care in the most safe way possible, which sometimes is by calling the ambulance. And if they end up suffering some sort of heart attack or heart-related issue, um, oftentimes, and we've had this conversation, I know, when you joined our program before, the importance of a program at Cadillac, the cardiac rehab program, the recovery program, when someone is recovering from a heart event. Yes, our cardiac rehab uh, team of nurses and exercise specialists are just amazing. So once somebody has one of those events that essentially uh, is a heart attack or requires uh, coronary intervention like a coronary stent placement. Uh, After the recovery phase and the discharge from the hospital, uh, we uh, in the cardiology department as far as providers in the office get them set up for cardiac rehab. So this is just a time that they can really focus on their heart health. They can really focus on increasing their activity tolerance, their exercise tolerance, Uh, They'll see that they have increased strength and stamina and endurance. And besides the physical uh, benefits that that the rehab department provides them, it even gives them extra education about what is a heart-healthy diet, how do I improve my sleep, how do I reduce my stress. Um, And that's just really beneficial for for these, these patients who we're able to help. And maybe we have just a minute or so, if you would, just a a takeaway comment. We touched on, unfortunately, the weather, although it is supposed to start warming up a little bit, but we have snow on the ground. And and maybe just a a general message for our listeners out there, regardless of their age, as we focus on our heart health. Yeah, so I think everybody needs to focus on their their general health and their heart health, and in uh, cardiology is no different. So what I like to encourage my patients to do is, 
um, be uh, mindful of their physical activity and try to incorporate physical activity as much as possible into their daily lives, even if it's uh, snowy. Um, You know, manage stress because it is a stressful time. Uh, I also think it's important to focus on uh, positive relationships, even though it's difficult at this time with uh, distancing uh, physically from people. We can still uh, maybe do things like Zoom or or telephone calls. Uh, Focus on the sleep or improve on your sleep if possible. And, of course, avoiding um, smoking and substances that uh, can be harmful to our health. Well, very timely information as always. April Valdez, an advanced registered nurse practitioner with Cadillac Inland Cardiology in the Tri-Cities. We thank you for your time and good advice for all of us to take, especially that that sleep. I like that one. April Valdez (laughs) with Cadillac. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us and continued good health uh, to you and all your patients uh, here in the Tri-Cities. Back with our remaining minutes of Cadillac on call in just a minute. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Here again, Jim Hall. We are continuing our discussion on good heart health, and we're happy to have on the phone with us Dr. Abdelazim Hashim, an interventional cardiologist with Cadillac's Inland Cardiology Heart Program. And Dr. Hashim, uh, first of all, thanks for taking the time. I know it's a busy time for you and the team uh, with patients that you're seeing. Maybe just initially before we get into the uh, heart health comment, but how has COVID affected the heart patients that you see on a regular basis? Uh, Well, thank you for having me. Um, uh, Definitely, uh, COVID-19 had affected uh, people with heart conditions, um, and in general, uh, people who have uh, heart disease, they are at increased risk of complications uh, related to COVID-19 infection. And um, uh, in in number of um, cases that we have seen here, um, it, it can trigger heart attack uh, and um, can trigger heart failure. And um, overall, uh, they, they cannot tolerate the, the, the infection uh, well uh, in general from any source, but in, in particular COVID-19. So um, we have uh, always uh, tried to advise our heart patients uh, to follow the CDC guidelines, uh, social distancing, um, wearing masks and and all these measures that kind of help reduce the, the risk of uh, getting infected with COVID-19. Well, it's always great to talk to you and cardiology experts like yourselves to help people with heart issues. And I know that technology just continues to advance in the medical world. And I know that uh, in the coming weeks, uh, there's going to be a new type of technique that, that uh, where for people that need valve replacement, They'll be able to get that right here, but you're already beginning to do them. But talk a little bit about this procedure and how that will benefit patients in our area. Uh, definitely, we are excited that we're going to bring this uh, uh, procedure right here um, uh, at Cadillac uh, to provide these services to our um, community. Uh, this procedure is called uh, TAVR. Uh, it's the abbreviation for transcatheter aortic valve replacement. 
And um, it is a minimally invasive heart procedure uh, to replace um, a narrowed aortic valve. And um, it's a condition called aortic stenosis where uh, the function of the valve gets affected as uh, the valve does not open well. And this aortic valve is a valve that connects the left lower chamber of the heart uh, called left ventricle. And this is the main pumping chamber of the heart that pumps uh, oxygenated uh, blood uh, to the rest of the body, to all our organs and tissues. And it goes through the aortic valve into the aorta. And this uh, aortic valve... uh, Generally, the normal valve uh, consists of three parts that kind of, they are very thin. We call them leaflets. They open and close freely. And when they open, they make nice openings to, to allow the blood to flow from the heart to the rest of the body. But uh, in many cases, uh, especially in elderly with time, uh, there will be thickening and calcification of these uh, uh, leaflets and they lose their ability, ability to, to open well, so they kind of stuck to each other. So they make a very uh, uh, narrowed, uh, they become narrowed and small, uh, make a small opening. And traditionally, uh, this is uh, treated with open heart surgery, where the surgeon open the chest, open the heart, and they take that valve out and then they saw in a new valve. But uh, over uh, you know, number of years uh, now the technology advanced and now we are able to offer this minimally invasive procedure uh, and we can replace that valve through uh, the the catheters, which will mean that uh, patients will recover very fast and they spend about only one night in the hospital and and they go home. Uh, There is no uh, scars in the body. It's all uh, done through catheters. Uh, and what it is, there is uh, two uh, major, uh, two types of valves that are approved by the FDA for the treatment of this condition. Generally, uh, we uh, recommend it to uh, patients who are at intermediate or high risk of complications from the traditional surgical uh, aortic valve replacement. And uh, basically, uh, these valves are, are kind of sold in a stent. And uh, we go from the groin in majority of patients uh, through catheters. We go across that valve, and then we kind of deploy uh, this uh, transcatheter valve, uh, which will compress the, 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 the natural or the native valve against the wall, and then the patient will have a new functioning valve in the middle. Uh, it's a uh, it's, uh, way, um, you know, kind of advanced. This is, this is really advanced and, and way uh, tolerable to the patient compared to the uh, open-heart surgery, which will require kind of long uh, period to, of recovery. So as you're mentioning, it's for patients that are probably at higher risk. So uh, the less invasive, the better the outcome for them. We just have a minute or so left, but I know uh, if you would just uh, that procedure, you'll we'll be starting to be able to have that available here in the Tri-Cities in the not-too-distant future, correct? Yes, definitely. So uh, we have started our tower clinic or valve clinic here about one and a half years ago, and uh, we have been seeing patients and uh, uh, evaluating uh, 
patients uh, here completely. We do a number of uh, uh, studies like CT scans, uh, ultrasounds of the heart, ultrasounds of the neck, uh, heart catheterizations. We do all these uh, uh, kind of imaging and, and workup uh, uh, testing here, and then I, I kind of schedule the patients there at uh, Sacred Heart uh, in Spokane, and I go meet my patients there uh, in the day of the procedure, and we do the procedure, and then I follow them uh, here afterwards. But now we'll be able to uh, do the procedure itself here uh, in April, uh, the, the, the second or the third uh, part of uh, April. Um, this is what we're planning on, on, on doing so that we can um, make it easier for our patients. Uh, obviously, the traveling, and especially in a bad weather like what we have now, uh, it's going to put uh, uh, a burden in our patients and their families. Uh, uh, so we, we are excited to bring it here. Uh, so that our patients can have all the uh, services that they need uh, um, for their heart health right here uh, uh, in, in the community. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. It's called Transcatheter Aortic Valve Replacement. It'll soon be coming to the Tri-Cities later this spring. TAVR is the acronym. Dr. Abdelazim Hashim, an interventional cardiologist here in the Tri-Cities at Catholic. Our thanks to all of our guests tonight, and thank you for joining us for Catholic on Call, presented by the Catholic Foundation. Good night.